We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. Hey guys and welcome back to Season 5 of Time to Rebuild. This season, we are focusing on lived experience stories and starting off with a double episode with a young guy making absolutely huge waves in the justice space, and that is Luke Anderson. In part one, we hear about Luke's upbringing and the challenges he's faced from the get-go. And that leads us into part two, where we look at his time in prison and how he used his time away to really develop himself and come out a reinvented person. And all that has led him to where he is today Uh, which is creating a social enterprise that's helping uh, young people and their families uh, that are serving time at the moment. So this is a great episode. You know, we went from like deep sadness at points to laughing immensely. Um, And then we were just inspired in others. So what I want to point out before we get started is that there are some complex topics in part one of suicide and abuse. So please use the discretion when listening. Uh, And if you need any support, there are links on our website and that's in the show notes. So thank you so much, guys. I uh, hope you really enjoy this first episode. I know me and Mick had a great time recording it with Luke. Thank you, guys, uh, and enjoy first episode of season five. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate. That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about, is giving that little sight. You're, you're going you're gonna to do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with, or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having. Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm going to do when I get out. And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of that mm. goes on in the prison. Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with Mick Cronin. <laughs> Mick Cronin. Mark Wilson. How you doing? Not too bad yourself? Yes. Doing well. Are you lying, actually? Because... Now, a bit under the weather. Yeah. It's a common theme now. I think in this season, you'll hear me. And there's been a distance <laughs> between recordings. But um, every time we seem to record, I've got, you know, uh, my voice seems to be going. So it's a bit rougher than normal, which it's always rough. So now you're getting <laughs> real rough. You know? So yeah. Mac might become something totally different. Yeah, that's uh, it. So. That's it. But we'll get you up, mate. That's, that's the least set of worries. That's right. Um, yeah, so today we got another massive episode. Uh, we're very, uh, very lucky to be joined by Luke Anderson uh, with us today. How are you going, Luke? Yeah, I'm good. That's I'm very good. good. Excited to be here. Thank you very much. Ah, great to have you. I mean, we came into contact with you. Well, not me personally. I've just met you today. But, uh, but you and Mick met at the Social Enterprise Forum up yes, in Brisbane. Correct, yeah. Um, I was facilitating... Um, I facilitating a session there and um, with, you know, three, I think I had four, a panel of four um, social entrepreneurs and social enterprises talking about what they do. And it was really focused around, you know, um, I suppose how they work in the justice system and how they work a little bit differently and, and how their approach to it is a bit different than, I suppose, your mainstream businesses as well and the impact that social enterprises are having. So I was lucky enough to uh, to meet with Luke and uh, and his wife, Kat, who was on the panel that day, um, and they were speaking a little bit about, you know, um, the work that they're doing with Fair Treads, but we'll talk a little bit that later, mate. We'll let you go into a bit of that later. But, yeah, it was great. It was a great look at the World Social Enterprise Forum was, you know, it's a big event to have it here in, in, you know, it was in Brisbane this year. And to have, you know, I think, you know, there was probably 1,500 in attendance on the time. It was pretty big, wasn't it, Luke? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the opening ceremony and the opening thing, I think everyone walked in, all of us, and kind of went, shit, like, this is pretty big. You know what I mean? Mm. So, but to have everyone from that space um, that we hadn't seen in a while, but also from Australia, all in one place, but also overseas as well. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty inspiring and a pretty great place to to catch up with people and great to be able to meet new people. Luke being one of them, so you know, Luke really liked me. I thought he was average, but uh, he, so uh, I thought you know we keep going with it now. I'm just like <laughs> talk, talk now, I'm like the crazy ex girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Texting him all the time, me on 
Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the restraining order's in place, mate. So I don't, we'll just do this one. That's the end of us. So, <laughs> nah, nah, totally not, mate. I was a, it was a privilege. It was a privilege to meet you and Kat as well. And you know, I was really keen when we spoke, saying, "Hey, listen, you got to come on and do an episode. Like, you know, your story's fantastic, but more so what you're doing with your life now as well." So, so I think we'll just jump into it, mate. You know, and uh, what we really good is just to kind of get a a bit of a background on you know on what you know where you grew up and, and what life was like for yourself growing up at that time. Yeah, so I I grew up down in Geelong in a housing commission home. So my parents were moderately young. So I think mum and dad were both about 22 when they fell pregnant uh, with me. They'd only known each other for about a couple of months. So it was uh, not really love per se. It was more of a lust type situation, I suppose. But... Uh, both of them carried a lot of their own traumas into into the situation. My, my dad had a pretty troubled upbringing, and mum had you know a lot of issues that yeah she she's still working through at the moment herself. But it kind of culminated in a not a, a mentally supportive environment would be the the nice way of putting it, because when you've got a couple of parents that aren't necessarily well grounded they're quite young sort of finding their way in the world and then they've got a whole lot of trauma and they've got issues potentially with substances as well it's not the best environment for a kid to grow up in so that ended up you know being an on again off again relationship after four years so yeah I'm four years older than my sister so I felt pregnant with my sister when they were in their on, one of their on again um, periods but at that same time, my dad's best mate uh, shot himself. So he was my, yeah, my un- uncle. So I don't, I don't have any kind of memories of him, but for my dad that sort of compounded a few things and, you know, resulted in some behaviours that weren't necessarily true to his character, but it, it continued that on again, off again, you know, tumultuous environment for my sister and I to grow up in ultimately mum and dad split up when I was nine years old and mum stayed in there so we were in this housing commission home mum stayed there her depressive state just got completely out of hand to the point where she couldn't get out of bed for days at a time you know apart from to go to the toilet and we ended up getting sponsored by the Smith family so uh, there was there was a bit of support there, but that didn't come in for a little bit. So there was a particularly tough little patch there where you know go to school hungry and would have locals just randomly drop off bags of food at our doorstep, and you know go to go to school with the, your, your shirt not washed for days at a time and. Then, I, yeah, it, it kind of created segregation between me and other kids at school because the the housing commission and and I didn't realise that this was a problem for me until I was like watching a YouTube video like a month ago, where it was, you know, in Western Sydney, there's these blokes that grew up in housing commission and they ended up getting involved in crime or whatever. But they talk about how, you know, we there was a bunch of us living in the house together and we didn't have much, but we had one another and we had love. And everything and understanding and I was well, in in Geelong a, a lot of the housing commission homes are in Newcomb or out in Corio or Lane and uh, I was down on the Ballerine Peninsula which is like yeah co- coastal town working class families everywhere and then there was just me and and my poor family you know so it was like go to school e- easily the the poorest kids there and uh, and yeah, stood out like sore thumbs. So couldn't really have real deep and meaningful friendships from a, a very early age. Uh, I, I always was the type of person that would, you know, hide all of my problems through you know stuff that had been passed on to me from my dad through his dad and through his dad. Uh, yeah, always just internalised everything. And that come 
that come into play a lot later on in life with like my offending behaviour, which I guess I'll get into. But uh, yeah, it sort of for me it manifested itself at school in that I never used to ask for help with homework. I, all, all my projects were late. Parents wanted to hold me back, but I begged them not to. But I just couldn't ask for any help with anything because I'd see what's going on with mum and I'd see what's going on with dad and I'll go, they've got bigger problems and I need to keep everything to myself. And it just kept mounting up, mounting up to the point where like I'd, I'd be taken out on a separate program at, in primary school and um, it was myself and this um, kid that had an intellectual disability and I knew that he had a disability and it was just me and him getting taken off to like repot plants and things. So you could imagine that, you know, I figured out oh, well, something's obviously wrong with me to, to be getting put into this separate program and then it just kind of manifested that idea that I'm on my own and, and I'm not really supported and whatever. In that same year, at, at nine years old, I, I got given a, a diary at Christmas and in that same diary, I've still got it now, I was making my first suicidal diary, diary entries as, as a kid that young. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of continued on until well, I would have been 12 or 13. My mum met a new partner, which changed a lot of things for us pretty quickly. Uh you know, he had a job, so that meant that we ended up moving in with him and then mum, you know, through that got a little bit more confidence and she was able to gain employment part-time. She was doing, like, after-school care and all of a sudden we, and we were getting sponsored by the Smith family as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to go on school excursions again. Um, I'm fronting up to, to sport and stuff like that all the time. Uh, it, it kind of just started to resemble normality, but I carried, obviously, those mental health issues the whole way through. And I, I guess it was around about uh, 15, I, I started to get, you know, interested in girls and they didn't like me, I liked them, as is <laughs> the case with blokes most of the time. You chase them around, you weird them out and whatever. And then... Um, compounded by the fact that I had these insecurities and mental health issues, I started getting like real heavily into running, like really, really heavily. So much so that I look back at it now, it definitely wasn't healthy, but I was running a half marathon before footy training and then doing footy training. I don't, I don't know how the hell I was doing it at, at 16 years old. But uh, yeah, I became hyper-focused on that and I, I just managed to get through high school and then as I'm coming out of high school and starting to think about what I'm wanting to, to do with myself, uh, my mum's partner at the time ended up sexually assaulting my sister. So that kind of flipped my life on, on its head. There was you know just one random night out of nowhere. There was no warning signs or anything. And I was just in my room at like one in the morning I think I was playing FIFA on, on the Xbox and my sister came in crying hysterically she was uh yeah she would have been 13 and I, I kept saying to her what's wrong what's wrong and then I just started getting angry like what's wrong why are you why are you fucking crying and eventually she told me like I tried to touch me or whatever my first instinct was just pure white rage so I went to the um to my closet I grabbed out my baseball bat and she she goes, what, what are you doing? And still obviously hysterically crying because she's scared that I'm going to go kill him now. And she's like, please don't. I don't want you to go to jail. I don't want you to go to jail. And and I was shaking. I, was, I still get shake, mm. shaky from anger now thinking about it. But um, fortunately, I went, I had a moment of clarity and I went, yep, no, okay. But I, I was also feeling very guilty because my mum was laying in, in bed next to the bloke. But um, I put the baseball bat back and then my sister and I got in our pyjamas and we walked through the street. At, uh, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning by this stage. And then I went to a, a friend's house nearby and their dad answered the door and I was trying to explain exactly what the situation was and they 
kind of couldn't comprehend it. And I said, look, can you please just let me in? Like, I, we need to call the police. Like, something's happened. And then, yeah, no worries. Police got called. Um, then uh, we got taken into the police station. My dad came in. So, you know, I had a bit of a fractured relationship with my dad throughout this whole time. And, uh, he, yeah, he came in and, and got told what happened. And then my mum got called in before work and then dad said look I'm going to go get everybody McDonald's I'll be back he returned an hour and a half later and he had blood spatters yeah. <laughs> all over him and so he actually so he'd actually rocked up to his work and um yeah sort of kicked the the living hell out of him and um that ended up yeah going through court dad got charged with assault um the bloke got convicted of a sexual offence. Mum moved away and then I ended up moving in with my friend that had taken us in that night. And through my sister's bravery and example that she set, that friend ended up confiding in me that that their dad, who had entered the door that night, was actually a pedophile as well and had done some pretty terrible things to to my friend and uh, and their siblings and then I ended up being in a supportive role for the next, um, it was an, another couple of years after that, so from seven, about 17 till 19. But you were living in that house? Yeah. And he was there, the father? Uh, no, not He'd when got, I was living yeah. there. So this, this, this was, was in quick succession right. from with what happened to my sister and then um, she, mum and Tani moved away. Yeah. And... Um, and then through ne- the necessity of, like, I, I stayed at friends' houses and I stayed, stayed at dad, my dad's a little bit, but then ended up, yeah, one night hanging out with my friend and they said, and I said, you you got to say something right now, like, for the sake of your mum, you gotta, you got to do this. And uh, that, that was re- really hard for them to do, but, yeah, they ended up doing that. And then, yeah, that was all, yeah, that, that was sort of yeah, in and out of court over uh, mentally very consuming over the next couple of years uh it ended up being that yeah that that friendship ended up coming to an end about yeah it would have been another two or so years later and i just managed to get a, a job as an apprentice electrician at the time so i was 19 years old nearly 20 and then I didn't have that place to live at anymore, so I ended up living out of my car. Uh, so yeah, and just couch surfing, you know. Like, where's your sister? When sorry, where's your sister at all this point? So they moved first to Ballarat, yeah. and then up to Queensland. Right. So they're so in Queensland by this time. And you're on your own here. Yeah. In Geelong. Yeah. Still living there. And and I want to be very clear as well that I had friends. And I had some family, so family I was estranged from because this this whole mindset that I had sort of been given from earlier on in life with that whole, you know, I can't talk out about what I've got going on, cop it on the chin like a man and everything like that. It just, life just kept giving me reasons to to manifest that time and time and time again. Because I didn't have the the vocabulary, uh, the vocabulary or the the I don't know mental capacity to be able to explain my situation, to be open and honest with people, to be able to let people in, and, and to be able to support me properly. So yeah, I just I just kept yeah my mind just kept festering, and it, it became worse and worse. I became more and more disenfranchised with society as a whole. But I was it, it look. I, I haven't met anybody that was, that's been as good at, at hiding their their feelings as what I am. And mm. well, you've been doing re- it since nine. Yeah. Like so, like you, you've been doing it now for like ten years. Mm. And in that ten years, it's not like it's been subsiding. You've been taking more stuff on mm. every day, every week, heavier and heavier. Yeah. So, like for a young person like who's nine years of age to go with them ten years. And in that ten years, have all of this trauma, mm. yeah, which is the call of what it is. Like a lot of trauma come onto you, as well as trying to figure out life 
and everything around you is against you, it's pretty. It'd be pretty natural. Like yeah. I couldn't. I, I've never lived it. I couldn't see yeah. it. But it's incredible just hearing your story from that point to that point. That it's it's understandable yeah. that you were hiding stuff because you to make sense of it was probably too hard. Yeah, it's it's that, and it's like a survival mechanism yeah. as well. So, like if if you were try if you were to be able to comprehend, or if you thought that people were meant to treat you in a certain way, and they they weren't able to fulfil those those basic needs, then I think that I would have given up for sure. And the, and there were definitely times where, like after I ended up. Um, becoming homeless for a time there uh yeah again that that sort of it, it wasn't even a, when when I say suicidal it was just like a, a hope that I would just die like it wasn't a actively like oh, I'm gonna go and do this or I'm gonna do, go and do that it was just like please something just happen please mm. something just take me because like, I'm really really sick of this mm. But I, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to reiterate the fact that yeah, I had friends and family, but I was not really. Uh, I was completely detached from my family by this point, and friends. Everyone was shocked uh, to end up finding out like later on the way that I'd been living prior to getting involved in crime. No, nobody knew because I, I hid it so well, but. Uh, what what ended up happening was I I used to when when I was a kid I would go to school and um, I'd go down to local milk bar and I'd steal stuff and I'd bring it to school and then I'd sell it or I'd get these lollies from from home sometimes my mum used to get these lollies from not quite right called uh, pit bulls they're like warheads but like way more sour yeah. and I'd bag them all up and I'd sell them at school because nobody else could get these pit bulls and they're sour as and then I'd with that money then I'd go and uh, then I'd go and buy my lunch order so on a Friday I could get a lunch order like everybody else and like couple that resourcefulness with the whole taking everything onto my own shoulders mindset it it created a perfect storm for when I was at my my most vulnerable which ended up being that I, I had this job and I was living out of my car my car was like my whole life was in it. it it looked like something off of hoarders it was it was absolutely disgusting Ford Festiva Trio S that's what I was about to ask what type of what type yeah. of wheels were you driving yeah it was like a, a rice a rice bubble with wheels <laughs> like it was it was high roof fit in more <laughs> yeah it was, was two story yeah pretty much it was yeah um so I would yeah I would go to work and these two bosses uh, that I had at the time they were both younger fellas so I was 20 they would have been you know in their early 30s and if I had have at any point explained to them that I was doing it tough they would have 100% helped me out I'm sure that one of them would have let me even live with them or or whatever but I just was not capable of asking for help so I'd I'd actually go to work through the week I'd get it was like 280 bucks that I'd get paid per week and um, I'd spend it all on the weekend on not having to, you know, have any kind of time alone. So I'd go out on the town, flat out, go to nightclubs and what have you. Uh, Then through the week, I'd come to work, wouldn't have any money for lunch, wouldn't have anywhere to prepare any kind of lunch or anything like that. So I'd actually just go to work smoko oh yeah i'm going to the shops and i'd just drive around the corner and i'd sit there then i'd come back to work and it's lunchtime oh yeah i'm going down the shops i'll go drive around the corner because being hungry the pain of of hunger was way easier to deal with than the the idea of asking for for any kind of help from somebody and I've spoken about this previously as well as like the, this other part of me, whereas like I was so self-loathing at the time where it's like there's, there's a little bit of it 
again, I, I think that it's potentially like a this coping mechanism as well, where you're just like, oh yeah, you deserve it. You're getting what you deserve, and it's like, like as if you go, like I felt like I was like going to the gym and I'm pumping out reps, but it's like I'm just sitting in my car and I'm hungry and going like, yeah, you know, this this is what you deserve. This is what you're worth. And then I'd go back to work and I'd hide it from everybody, and then. Um, one day I was working around the corner from McDonald's and I said, I'm going to Smoko. I'm going to go buy, going to go buy my lunch or whatever. And they, yep, no worries. And by this stage, they must have been scratching their heads going like, how's this apprentice affording to go buy Smoko every single day? Like I, I would have thought that I was hiding it. I wouldn't have been hiding it. But I, I got to McDonald's and McDonald's had double beef and cheese promotion at the time and it was one dollar for a double beef and cheese so it was pretty frequent that I was getting like it was like a mad um, high calorie dosage so I yeah get my dollar go through I'm like so this, this would have been on a on a Tuesday I went parked in the McDonald's car park and I started scrounging through my car and I started out like with 20 cents find another 20 cents 10 cents, 5 cents, 20 cents. I'm like, oh, sweet. Got up to 85 cents. Then I can't find any more money. 90 cents. I ended up getting to 95 cents and I had to go back to work at this stage. And for for some reason, that moment was a catalyst for change for me because it, it was like, you know, lightning just come from the sky and just struck me. And I'd like, I, wa- I wasn't... Uh, ever an emotional person unless I was drinking you know so it, it just came out of nowhere all of a sudden I just broke down in tears like really, really like hysterically crying like what, what 95 cents why can't I even have a dollar like I was particularly hungry on this day I'd worked pretty hard and then like through my tears I just like started crying I guess in kind of a manic way but I started laughing and then just starting to think like Oh, you know what? Yeah, actually, you know what it is. It's gonna, it's gonna be. Like, I, I haven't believed in in God before, but I do now, and He's there, all right, and He's there, to, He's there to get me, because there's got to be someone that's responsible for this the whole way along, because it can't be, it can't be that I'm having these experiences throughout my whole life, and there's no higher being that isn't just trying to push my face into the dirt every time that I try to have any any little thing uh, go right for me and then that sort of went through the you know the laughing at how ridiculous the situation was with the 95 cents to you know what no one's been there for you no one's going to be there for you it's up to you you're the one that's got to do something about this and you start now and so then I I kind of got a bit motivated weirdly (laughs) and uh, I went I'm going to get this 95 cents. I'm going to go through the drive-thru. I'm going to order a double beef and cheese. And then I'm going to go up to the young girl that's going to likely be working the window and I'm going to hand her the 95 cents and she's going to count it. She's going to go, oh, it's only 95 cents. And then I'm going to awkwardly act like I'm searching for another five cents for about 10 seconds. And then she's going to say, don't worry about it. And she'll wave me through. And then I'll get my double beef and cheese and then I'm going to get on my way. I did exactly that. I got my double beef and cheeseburger. I pretended that I was looking for five cents. She just said, don't worry about it. And then I went, right, I got, I got my burger. This is symbolic. I'm, I'm now going to be looking for opportunities to get out of this situation. And because I was frequenting nightclubs and, and things at the time, that opportun- opportunity ended up presenting itself in, in party drugs. So I ended up, trying speed for the first time uh would have been on my 20th birthday so I was completely anti-drugs because of what I'd seen growing up you know uh up until that point so like my none of my family have been anti-drugs but I I was definitely hard hard stance against it but then now I was like you know susceptible to all kinds of really shitty decision making and uh yeah, tried the speed and then instead of just going, I went, oh, yeah, this feels good. This feels really, really good. But then I went, I'll see why other people like this. And then I went, hmm, 
and because of my resourcefulness and the the basic business principles that I'd learnt learnt earlier in life out of necessity, I ended up going, well, how about I go back to my dealer, ask how much it is if I was to get whatever bit larger amount and see if I can go around to people that I know that are in the scene and see if they'll get it off me and ended up crunching the, the maths and I was like, oh, I could make 150 bucks off of flipping what's called an eight ball, which is three and a half grams. And um, yeah, I did that, made the 150 bucks, which was half a week's wage, you know, over, it, it took me like two or so weeks to sell it all. Um, and then as one person started getting off me, the next person started getting off me. And yeah, then it, it really started to sort of change things for me. I'd say that the, the pivotal moment for me was in, in my in my drug dealing career where it went from not just being a necessity to being, uh, you know, this is a, a thing where, all right, your fundamental, fundamental needs are met. It's not, it's not just doing it to survive anymore. It was like, you know, I, I was selling it initially, um, it was speed, but very quickly moved away from that into the, the party, party um, scene drugs, so like ecstasy and, and weed and stuff. And I managed to get a room, like renting a room with uh, a couple of friends. And then I actually ended up finding confidence through selling drugs. I started like people wanted to be friends with me. Uh, girls started talking to me that never, ever would have talked to me before um, and still probably won't talk to me now it's just while, <laughs> while I was selling <laughs> drugs. But, um, um, yeah, I, I got all this confidence. My work, my work performances actually increased. So I was like, I was going out from Thursday till Sunday and I was getting pissed and I was just trying to make more money and then I was still fronting up to work. On a, on a Monday through to a Friday, no dramas. And I, w- I started to do well. And then I ended up getting a better job, which I was working up on the, the Westgate Bridge as a maintenance electrician. And um, my so my pay overnight from legitimate sources doubled. And now I was able to, you know, yeah, have this he- roof over my head. I was able to start buying new clothes and I got a new car and everything like that. But still, the demons were there, skeletons in the closet, and I'd formulated all these behaviours and that all just came together and it just absolutely exploded, particularly once I, I so- kind of capped out uh, down in Geelong and I went with my nice new car, my nice new clothes. I went up to Ballarat. I went into a nightclub one night and uh, asked if there's anyone here that's selling pills and I found the guy that was selling pills and he he was saying to me, like, oh, I like, thought it was a, I was an undercover copper initially and I said, look, man, I've actually got some pills for you. If you come and talk with me, I'll give you some for free and um, and then we can try and figure something out. So he came out, came out to my car, saw my nice new car because I'd planned all of this out came out to my nice new car, sat in the car and uh, I, I gave some pills to him. I said, look, don't take them both at once, but I promise that they're good and um, maybe we can figure something out. So, And on that basis, because I said it with complete confidence, I said, well, how, how many are you moving every week? And so I, was, I would have been moving like, you know, 50 or something at the time and um, he ended up saying, oh, anywhere between two and 500. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah. And we're like, like sort of roughly what price? And he divulged that to me as well because he was, he was on MDMA. So people are way too open and honest when they're under the influence of that. And uh, he goes, oh, about 15 each. So then I had a figure to, to work with and I needed, I, I knew that I needed to somehow source them for a couple bu- at least a couple bucks cheaper than that. But then once I had those those figures, I was able to start entering into conversations and leveraging his his um, buying power. Then things just yeah got really out of hand from there. So were you taking drugs at the time as well, or just drinking? Yeah, no, take absolutely taking yeah. drugs for sure. 
it was um yeah it wasn't through the week it was it was yeah I've I've had a really really high work ethic from a really young age and I think that if things had have continued the way that they were if I hadn't have got arrested I reckon I would have ended up having a heart attack because I was I was drinking still fronting up to work like by the end of like just before I got arrested I was like you know I ended up getting sacked from my job and like things really caught up with me as as I got you know more and more money then I didn't care as much about my job anymore but um yeah I'd I'd go from my day job, then I'd go into like my night job and then I'd be getting pissed on the weekend and then I was still playing footy. I was playing indoor soccer and all, all juggling all these things. And yeah, I, I was not a picture of health come come the time that I got arrested, that's for sure. So talk us through that then. Where did it, um where did it where did you take that step too far then? Where did it catch up in it? Yeah, so it was it was two thousand and sixteen. And I had been, I'd been sacked from one of my electrical gigs. So I'd, I'd got placed at another another gig. I ended up like tearing my cartilage in my knee at footy. And once I was off on the injury, I'm still making, still making money. I was just like, I just don't need to go back, you know. And then I was going out all the time. It was the first first time that my my physical health really had started to you know because I, I was still playing footy and I was still running and stuff up until you know the last couple of years before I went to prison and with the injury and all of that like I got fat I was taking drugs living off fast food and everything and um, I started to deviate from from sort of what my typical criminal operating procedures would be so I got a bit bit slack and um what ended up happening was ended up coming under an undercover investigation so that was six months prior to my arrest I was um under investigation and I had met a girl at coincidentally at exactly the same time uh and she'd moved down from Cairns her family was from Geelong, but uh, yeah, like she'd just come back to to be closer to family and stuff. But she didn't know who I was and what I was doing, which was really cool, really refreshing for me at the time. And inevitably, she ended up finding out what I was doing, and she broke things off with me. I was like, "Sorry, I can't, I can't be seeing you anymore because I'm from a good family, and you know that's not what we're about." So I ended up lying to her and saying look you know I'm, I'm going to start to wind things back so that I can be with you um which yeah I don't I don't really think that like I said those things and in the moment I meant it but I was not a, a chance to to really actually be doing it but at this yeah these undercover operatives would come and purchase you know a few hundred pills off of me at a time and then uh yeah, good got a bit of cocaine off of me as well and uh, just bits and pieces bits and pieces and then trying to get more off of me and then more off of me and then more off of me ended up uh trafficking three and a half thousand ecstasy tablets to them over the that course of of six months and it was at that stage where i'd said to him look i can't keep just doing hundreds two years it's not worth my time it's either thousands or nothing and then that's when I ended up getting arrested because I said that I didn't <laughs> want to see him anymore. Um, uh, and then it was, yeah, the day before my 25th birthday that there was the knock on the door and uh, that girl had happened to be staying around um, the night before, the one that I'd promised that I was winding things up for. And all of a sudden, uh, yeah, there was two absolutely gigantic police officers standing at the foot of the bed because I had a housemate, and he had um, they they just knocked and he let them in. Like there was there wasn't. I did, well, I didn't hear the whole, you know, Victoria Police, because mm-hmm. like, I'd been raided uh, prior to that. 
which that was more of a traditional raid. But um, yeah, I got I got arrested. I was acting really really cocky, like you know they haven't got anything on me. I'm sitting on the couch with my feet back. They're like, all right, we've got to go down the station, and I said. I said to the girl, I said, oh, don't worry, I'll be back by lunch. And the and the copper sort of looked at me and he, he's like, oh, like snickered at me. He goes, we'll see, mate. And then uh, I went in there, got yeah, got charged with trafficking a large commercial quantity of MDMA and uh, a trafficable quantity of cocaine. Did the penny drop then when you were there that the, you've been selling to undercover cops? Did it all start to come in your head going, actually, I'm screwed here? No, so what what happened initially was they they said that I'm I'm being charged with trafficking a large commercial quantity, and so there's there's two two charges in Victoria where you can get a maximum term of imprisonment of life. One of them's murder, the other one's trafficking a large commercial quantity of of drugs. Right, and uh, by this stage, with everything that had happened in my life, I like I was that numb that I had absolutely no visceral response so they said it to me and i just i was accepting of it and i called the lawyer and they said yeah it's got maximum term of imprisonment of life and i went well i'm yeah i'm probably spent here because i didn't know that the potential implications of it if i had gone down for that i would have done like 10 or 12 years uh but the the officers you know they take you in for questioning and then they start the line of questioning how do you know this? What's your relationship to this person? No comment. What's your relationship to this person? No comment. You know, you just make no comment statement because otherwise you'll say things that are incriminating. And it got to a certain stage, no comment, no comment, no comment. Then they go, look, Luke, yeah, you know, they, they try to do the, the good cop side of things. They go, Luke, to be fair to you, we're going to let you know that Alex and whatever, you know, this is the operative's aliases. Uh, those two are undercover cops. So, uh, you know, we want to see if that changes any of your answers. And then all of a sudden it was, it went from me just going, no comment, no comment, no comment to go on. Okay, I've got to go into damage control here because, you know, this, this could impact other people and they... Instead, of, they asked me the question again, what would you do with all the money? So they'd asked me what I did with the money before it was no comment. Now it was, I pissed it up against the wall. So I just started, you know, seeing how I could put my hand up for stuff to protect other people around me, as you should. Uh, but, yeah, I, I went and got taken into the, the police cells after my questioning and that was definitely the worst part of my sentence you know, you, you're in with people fresh off the street, you know, withdrawing from heroin, withdrawing from ice. Uh, there was a, yeah, one dude that he ended up getting hurt uh, by an, uh, another fella that I was in there with because he, you know, he divulged that I was, he was in there because all I did was slapped me missus and then this bloke was like, yeah, did you? <laughs> and he, he got sorted out pretty bad. But, um... Yeah, it was, it was really like, you know, you, you, you're laying there at night time, you got, you're in there with like people with all kinds of mental health issues and withdrawing from drugs and then you're sort of laying there going, what, what's going to happen with me next? Because I hadn't been in that, that situation before. But I was always, you know, I was always polite and courteous to, to any of the corrections staff, which ended up going in my favour after about two and a half weeks one of the I got moved up to the Ballarat holding cells, and the old sergeant or whatever there he goes he pulled pulled me aside he goes I know I know you're in a bit of strife and we're not we're not meant to do this, but you've got some letters of support, and we're going to give you a few minutes out in the yard just on your own and you can read them, but then you got to give give them straight back, and I said yeah all right. Thank you very much. So I'm thinking, you know, it's going to, you know, all the boys and this person, that person going to be sending letters. I have spoken to my family in any sort of meaningful capacity by this stage in about five or, five or six years. And um, the letters were from my mum, my sister, my dad, my stepmum, my nana and the girl 
that I'd put in a pretty fucking shitty position, to put it um, lightly. And oh, I get goosebumps every time. I, I've stopped crying about it when I tell because I've told that story enough times now. I just get goosebumps. But um, that was since my time in the Macca's car park, that was the first time that I'd cried sober in. So how many years since you've had any contact or any kind of with your family? How long were we talking here? So but when when I say contact, I mean like meaningful contact. So yeah. I'd talk to them on the phone and things right. like that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was around sort of, so I'm, I'm 25. So yeah, it would have been five years. Five years. And they had these mm. notes in front of you at the yeah. first time they've communicated with you yeah. really meaningfully. Yeah. 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 And just, just saying like, look, we know you're in trouble, uh, but we know the real you and we're just, we're just here to help you. And for me, I guess, yeah, I, I just, I just started crying again, but it was like proper, just like letting a whole bunch of stuff out. I guess it was just, it had created this environment where my back was to the wall. Everyone now knew what I'd been getting up to and that they said, look, we know you're actually a good person and we're just here to help you. And I never had like meaningfully had somebody say that to me before and to just sort of the power of a letter versus uh versus you know sometimes conversations the way that people say it with tone or the way that the mood that you're in as to whether you receive it or not is is totally different to like reading it in a letter and not having anywhere to run uh in in your mind apart from just going oh wow okay and yeah, that, that was incredibly confronting. And then I started, like, I gave the letters back. And then it came night time. Everyone was, everyone was all asleep. And again, I started crying. And I'm like, Phew. And I started thinking, man, what, look, what, what has happened? What has happened to me to have become the type of person that gets charged with something that ca- carries a, a maximum term of imprisonment of life? And again, I didn't know that the likely outcome for me would have been like 10 or 12 years I'm thinking that I could get life and I'm going look look, I I should care I should care that I'm potentially throwing away who knows how many years of my life like what what what's the the problem here what why have I got these people out here that are sending me these letters and saying they care about me and they're here for me but I'm sitting here going out and and I'm damaging myself. I'm I'm lying to people. I'm, you know, I wasn't thinking in terms at the time. Like I wasn't capable of thinking in terms of like I'm damaging the community, but I was damaging the community. I was a I was a conduit for other people to, you know, be able to do damage to themselves as well. And then like being a criminal, I was in plenty of violent situations too. So far removed from any kind of any kind of emotions and I, I just went you know what I'm this, this isn't this isn't me anymore I, I want to turn myself into a man that is petrified of losing years of his life I want to I want to be the type of man that that's got people around him that he doesn't want to disappoint not be the kind of man that just doesn't give a fuck about what people think of him or what what happens to him he'll just bounce back and whatever no you you got to have an element of care in there and uh i went away with that i got i got to the Mel- melbourne assessment prison and i got my first it, it it was like a you know when you have a really good say business idea right you get this real inrush of like all the potential of like, oh, it could be this, we could make billions, you, you could do this and you could do that. It was like the same thing when I'd made this decision that uh, I'm going to turn my life around and I'm going to become happy and healthy. And I'll remind you that at this point I hadn't talked to my family in any sort of meaningful capacity in a while. And I spoke to them on the phone and then I said, look, I'm happy for you to come and visit me. So the next time that they saw me was in the orange jumpsuit at the at the MAP, which is a Melbourne assessment prison. And I'm I'm sort of just like full of positive 
full of positive energy for <laughs> for how I'm going to turn my life around. But my family are like extremely distressed about my situation. But I'm in my head, I'm like, oh, compared to the holding cells and compared to the criminal life that I was lead, leading, like I felt safe. Yeah. You know, I had friends in there and, um, you know, was when, when you first come into the yard and whatever, you know, as one of my main rivals was in the yard, but I went over, I talked to him and, you know, he was like, oh, we're in here now, whatever. But, but, you know, it's us versus them, as in the screws and that. So that, that was all good. So I, I felt like safe and comfortable. But then I'm like, I'm, I see my dad and he's like, mate, you know, what, what have you done? What's happened and, and what have you? And I ended up saying to him, dad, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this into a massive positive. You know, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to, I'm going to be in a movie and all this kind of stuff and I'm bringing all this positive energy to these f- initial conversations that I'm having with my family. My dad left there thinking that I've lost my mind on drugs. Mm. Like I completely cooked myself. Yeah. Mm. And, um, it, it sort of just goes to show that like from, from the very beginning, I was like, I want, I want to do something about it. And then it led to me having conversations with this girl. She kept talking to me on the phone and um, we started writing letters to one another. And that, that was the first sort of real intimacy that I'd ever experienced with, with anyone before, which was ended up being quite pivotal for me in, in, in actually turning my life around because I thought, you know what, I'm going to be in here for years. I knew that for sure, but... I've got to shoot my shot with her. I've got to see if I can try to get her to hang around. So I I ended up writing this letter saying, look, I really appreciate you as a person. I betrayed your trust previously before I went to prison. But the way that you make me feel is that I've I've been getting around my whole life like a, a lost little boy, just sort of searching for answers, trying to act like he's tough and everything. But if, if you support me, and stick by me to to get through this process, then I'll become the man that you deserve. And fortunately for me, that worked. And she said yes. And then I had successfully given myself my first healthy goal in in my life. That was my first ever genuinely healthy goal. And I started panicking because I had no idea, like... I, I was punching above my weight. She's studying uh, biomed, so she's studying to become a doctor. And I'm going, I'm just this plump little albino kid sitting in prison <laughs> probably for years. <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, I got, I got the gift of the gab. I know that I can talk, but now I've actually got to, I've got to front up with this, you yeah. know, in, in a way that I've never done it before, right? Amazing story and it only gets better from here. Please jump on over to part B to listen to the second part of Luke's journey and how he got to where he is today. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab.